The reading is taken from John, chapter 19. You find it on uh, page 1087 of the Church Bible. It's page 1087. Jesus sentenced to be crucified. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. indeed, Charlie. Would you keep that passage open in front of you? It's on page 1087. Well, this uh, subject is the third in our sermon series, What Christians Believe, the Creed, and we're focusing on the phrase this morning, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Tom Houston, in a short book on figures around the cross, 
uh, wrote about Pilate, uh, this is what he said, although that obscure Roman governor of Judea stepped onto the stage of human history for only four hours, his name is known to more people in the world than those of most of the great men of history. Not 15 minutes of fame, but fame forever. So who was he? And that's my first point this morning. Who was Pilate? He was the Roman governor of Judea from AD 26 to 36. His main residence was in Caesarea, but rather like our queen, he had a palace in Jerusalem, which belonged originally to Herod the Great. And it's possible, Houston suggests, that he was appointed through nepotism. His wife was the illegitimate daughter of the third wife of Emperor Tiberius, and so a granddaughter of Augustus Caesar. Well connected. It was a big job too. He was responsible for law and order, the administration of justice and taxes, and because of his connections, had he been appointed above his abilities. Pilate also had made some serious errors of judgment before Jesus had been brought to him. There was considerable Jewish sensitivity about bringing any images into Jerusalem. It was thought to be blasphemous and against the second commandment. Up until Pilate's appointment, the Romans had observed this concern by not marching into Jerusalem with standards bearing images. But Pilate ignored previous custom and practice and allowed this to happen. And as a result, there was nearly a riot. On another occasion, he took some of the temple tax money to pay for the building of an aqueduct. Again, a crowd gathered, threatening to riot. Pilate sent his people in to mingle with them, wearing plain clothes, nothing new there, before at a signal turning on them and stabbing them. This caused a stampede, and a number died as a result. And after Jesus' crucifixion, there was another badly handled incident, and Pilate was recalled by the emperor. Luke 13.1 records... Now, there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And the NIV Study Bible footnote says this, The incident is otherwise unknown, but having people killed while offering sacrifices in the temple fits the reputation of Pilate. So what is the picture that is being built up about Pilate's character? At the least, he could be tactless, obstinate, and even ruthless. Some would describe him as a cruel tyrant. He was possibly not up to his job in a very sensitive part of the Roman Empire. And so that's Pilate. Secondly, let's run through the events that cover those four hours. And we read about them just a little earlier in chapter 18, verses 28 to our passage. Having been interrogated by Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest that year, Jesus is then sent to Pilate. And Pilate tells them, uh, the Jews, chapter 18, verse 31, that they should judge him by their own laws. But the religious leaders object. They object because they don't have the right to execute anyone, and that is what they're aiming to achieve. And we know that to be the case from John chapter 11, when a meeting of the religious ruling council, the Sanhedrin, had been called, and there they said, what are we accomplishing? 
Here is this man performing many signs, that's to say Jesus. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And Caiaphas had replied then, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So you see their thinking. Jesus was a threat. And with that thinking, how could Jesus possibly get a fair trial? Then there follows a discussion between Pilate and Jesus, chapter 18, 33 to 38, and we'll return to that in a moment. 39 and 40, Pilate asked the Jews if, as is the custom at Passover, he can release Jesus, the king of the Jews, since he can find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews cry out, no, not him, give us Barabbas, who was, as Luke's account uh, tells us, a known criminal and murderer. Pilate has Jesus flogged, perhaps to show that he has done something, and once again tries to negotiate with the Jews, Jewish leaders and spiritual leaders, since he can find, again, no reason to charge him. This inflames the increasingly vociferous crowd who shout, crucify him. Now, it all really reads like a play, actually a tragedy, uh, with stage directions. Just follow me through. See how Pilate vacillates. 1829, he comes out to them. 1833, he went back inside. 1838, he goes out again to the Jews. 194, once more, Pilate comes out. 199, he went back inside. And 1913, he brought Jesus out. And finally, we read, in 1916, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. No doubt the conclusive argument for Pilate was the implicit blackmail in verse 12 of chapter 19. Did you spot it? From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, for anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You'd better watch it, Pilate. Otherwise, we'll tell on you. Now, thirdly, let's consider more closely the conversations between Jesus and Pilate, because I believe they reveal a great deal. In chapter 18, verse 33, we read how Pilate asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate probably picked this phrase up as one of the accusations made by the religious leaders. Look at the conversation starting there. Chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? I don't know the ins and outs of all of this, he's saying. Uh, your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
Jesus tells Pilate he is indeed a king, but not the political leader that the Jewish religious leaders were expecting in the Messiah. His kingdom is not of this world. It's far, far greater. And its power comes not from a merely earthly source, but from another place. In other words, from the Lord God Almighty, the ruler of the universe. (laughs) He's on a different plane. Pilate hasn't got it. The fact that Jesus is not just a king, but the king of kings, should give us pause for thought as we consider Pilate and how he was in a total muddle. If Jesus is the king of kings, how important a part should he play in our discipleship? How conscious are you and I each day that as Christians we serve the king of kings? That as the supreme authority he has the right to expect our loyalty, even our obedience. He must be allowed to rule in our lives over our time, our money, and our priorities. We must lay them before him, consult him, obey him in these areas. And then Jesus speaks about the truth. He came, he says that he came, verse 37, to testify to the truth. And Pilate responds by asking, I think it's a rather haunting moment. What is truth? Does he really want to know, or is he playing with words in a dismissive way? What is truth? Or what is truth? And note that Pilate doesn't actually say what is the truth, although Jesus said that he'd come to testify to the truth. Now, of course, that chimes in with much of today, the thinking that truth is relative. What is true for you may not be true for others, but the truth, the truth, is not relative. Actually, we all believe in absolutes, don't we? My wife, Trisha, likes to use the example of the law of gravity. If you have a toddler, you will uh, put bars or ensure on the the windows of their bedroom uh, that uh, they can't fall out, that, that they will be looked after because you believe in the absolute truth of the law of gravity. You may not like the law of gravity, you may not agree with it, but it's there. The fact that Jesus claimed to be the truth, as later we know famously, John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, is something that we have to accept, whether or not we like it or even agree with it fully, for truth is not relative. One writer has said, there's no halfway house about truth. The person either accepts it or rejects it, and Christ is the truth. And then poor Pilate has Jesus flogged, chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Now those few words cover agonizing pain. People died from being flogged. And he allowed the soldiers to mock Jesus, to place a crown of thorns on his head, put on a purple royal robe, and then they slapped him in the face. That's the ultimate insult, isn't it? Such agony, such humiliation. But Pilate, even after all this, still continued to question Jesus. I think he's intrigued. There's something about this man. Look at chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. 
And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And on hearing that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, Pilate was even more afraid. That's interesting, isn't it? You see, Romans were superstitious. This charge frightened him. This was bigger than anything. He wanted to know where Jesus had come from. He didn't want to mess with God, as he understood it. And he asks if Jesus doesn't realize that he has power to free him or crucify him. And verse 11, there is Jesus' answer. It's absolutely stunning. Bear in mind that the Roman Empire was the greatest empire of the day. And here is Caesar's representative. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Well, it just changes everything. In other words, he's saying, bear this in mind, he's saying this to Pilate in front of him, you're not in control, God is. That's what he's saying. Pilate thinks that it's Jesus who is in trial. In fact, it's Pilate who is on trial. And the question is this, is Pilate going to give in to the popular wish of the crowds and the religious leaders, Or will he, as a Roman representative, very proud of Roman law, will he listen to his own instinct? For Pilate, again and again, clearly concludes that Jesus is innocent. And his fears that a higher power is involved here would have been underlined by his wife, who we read in Matthew 27, had sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So he has his wife saying, don't touch this man. He has his own convictions, and he has this baying crowd. I'm slightly sympathetic. Not easy. And perhaps that is why Pilate answers as he does when the chief priests protest about the notice that he has arranged to be put on the cross, the king of the Jews. They said it should read, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate says, and we read about it in 1922, what I have written, I have written. He seems to be saying that the kingship of Jesus is final and unalterable. I'm not going to be pushed around anymore. That's my view. So we have Pilate. A ruthless, cruel ruler, a fearful man, a coward, perhaps, yet someone with an inner struggle. And so when we say that phrase, it trips off our tongue, doesn't it? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. We need to remember the terrible physical suffering, but the mocking, the sense of injustice, and the paradox that a murderer was freed who had taken the lives of others, and an innocent man was crucified. The one who died to give his life and eternal life to millions. What an exchange. What a terrible exchange. So, 
We've looked at the character of Pilate. That was my first point. His role in the events, secondly. Thirdly, leading up, uh, leading up to the crucifixion. And thirdly, his questioning of Jesus. My final point is this. What was Pilate's significance? We read about that in the story of the early church in Acts chapter 3. We're told of the wonder and amazement that followed after the healing of a man crippled from birth. And Peter told the crowd that all this had come from faith in the name of the risen Christ. Listen to what he said. You handed him over to be killed. This is Jesus, of course. You disowned him before Pilate. Key fact. Though he had decided to let him go. Interesting, he knew that. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. See, this is not a fairy story. This is reality. And don't you think that it bears all the hallmarks of the realities of life, of politics, of power, of decisions, of fear? And Peter continued, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. What a bombshell. For as we saw earlier, popular religious thinking was that God's Messiah would be a triumphant, victorious leader who would free them from Rome's yoke. But Peter was pointing to the suffering servant prophecies, for example, of Isaiah 53, to show how wrong they were. And moreover, there was something for them to do, repent and turn to God, that their sins would be wiped out. And this message was not time-limited or nation-limited. For all that led up to Jesus' crucifixion and later resurrection has implications for you and me today. And that is the significance of Pilate. Without his authorization, Jesus' death would not have taken place, nor would its benefits extend to you and me today. He is the hinge of the door. And there is a fascinating contrast here. I wonder if you notice it. Pilate, with all his power and pomp, was imprisoned by his fear of others, including his masters in Rome. And Peter, originally, was equally fearful of others, you remember, three times denying that he even knew Jesus. But from Pentecost on, he was a changed man, speaking boldly, no matter what the consequences, as we've just heard. And the Apostles' Creed says, Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, and then he was crucified, died, and was buried. And in his first letter... Chapter 3, verse 18, Peter, in one verse, sums up the implications of Jesus' death. Listen to these words. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus died once, and it was unique in its effect in contrast to the repeated priestly sacrifices in the temple. The writer to the Hebrews, chapter 7, spells this out. Unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
So Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for all people, for all time, forever. The death of Jesus, says Peter bluntly, was for sins. Now, we don't like that word. It sounds Victorian. It's a reality. All of us would admit we're ashamed of ourselves at times, things said or done or things not said and not done. We're conscious at the very least that we've let ourselves down, let alone God. And because of our behavior, we've caused a holy God to become distant from us. It's not God's fault. It's ours. And it's Jesus' death which paid for our shameful acts and thoughts. And as a result, the dividing barrier between us and God has been taken down. And it's now possible for us to be reconciled. What a wonderful word. Have you ever seen a family where there's been a row and an argument and then they're reconciled? I'm sure in your families you know nothing about that. To become the people we were intended to be, to be transformed, fulfilled, knowing our eternal destiny is secure. And the purpose of Jesus' death is to bring us to God. Couldn't be more simple. When in two weeks' time we celebrate Easter, we remember his death on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, his glorious resurrection from the dead. His complete victory over death our last enemy and the proof that sin has finally been dealt with and paid for. So today, let us thank God that he allowed his one and only son to suffer under Pontius Pilate that we might have eternal life. And as we come to receive the bread and the wine, the Holy Communion, let us be truly grateful for what the suffering brought for all who turn to Christ In true and honest repentance, he brings us to God. Let's pray.